welcome to Oh My Word, the podcast about Watford in the 90s with Matt and Michael. This week, we're not going to be going through one of the seasons. We're actually going to take a slightly different approach. We're joined by Pete Fincham, who's a, a lifelong Watford fan. I'm sure we'll be familiar to many of the, the tens of listeners that we have in our, our podcast. Probably some of them know Pete, but we really wanted to share some of Pete's experiences as a, a Watford fan in the 90s. Um, uh, the good and the bad, and particularly focus on what life was like following Watford away from home during this period. We talked about in a previous episode, we talked quite a lot about the Watford sort of match day at Vicarage Road in the 90s and some of those, you know, sights, sounds, characters. But in this episode, we really want to try and dig into a bit more what it was like going on the road with Watford around the country, you know, what the, the, the experiences was like there, the, the experiences of the fans, the stadiums, and, and the good and the bad experiences that that Pete and others had. So, um, Pete, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, really, really great to be here. Thanks for thanks for inviting me on. No, thank you. And I think, you know, you've already been supporting and contributing to the podcast so far, which we, we really appreciate. So it's great, to, it's great to have you on and have a chat. Um, maybe we should start, Pete, with where you, where you sort of, the story begins, I suppose, in the 90s. Obviously, you were you you were a Watford fan from quite a young age, but tell us a bit about sort of how you started to get more closely involved with the club during the nineties and 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 how that came about. Well, it, it really wasn't until my sixth form um, that I got Saturday afternoons to myself because I went to a school in Berkhamsted and and they rigorously made us go to school Saturdays and Saturday afternoons was for games. And it wasn't until the lower sixth and upper sixth where you could almost extricate yourself by being a little bit rubbish and <laughs> um, and, and get on with uh, get on with your own life. So um, I, I'd been going consistently since the early 80s when I could uh, relatives and, and friends. By the time I turned, uh, I think my, my 16th birthday was at 7-2 against Bradford in 89. Right. And um, but but after that, I started going a lot more regularly. And then by the upper sixth year, um, 91 two season, I moved back to Watford from from the lofty distance of Hemel Hempstead. And um, the the option came up from a, from a conversation of being a being a part of the match day lottery sales team, which was just an amazing opportunity because got in for free. Um, access yeah. to areas, you get to new new people really really quickly, and actually, some of the time you're um, going from the game. Actually, that season you would go from the game and often go for a drink with some of the players. Such was the tangible <laughs> relationship between the staff, who would just wander out of the match day offices after the game, go into the old supporters club on Occupation Road, and there'd be someone in there who'd been playing three hours earlier. So it, it was a bizarrely type set of relationships and I I became intoxicated by it quite literally in some cases but um, I, I loved it I loved the fact that I could wander down the club um, at any time of day or night and there'd be someone there who would just have a chat with you whether it be um, Les Simmons um, part of the ground staff some of the management team at the time it was Taylor and Perriman um, who were in there and people would just talk. They would be happily passing the time of day with you while you'd sit back. And, and I, at age 17, when I started working for the club, completely fell in love with not just what I watched on a Saturday, but the whole institution of the place. Even though actually, administratively, it was in one of its darkest periods. 
I still yeah. felt the fabric of the club was still very linked to the legacy of GT and the wonderful things that he'd done. Sounds a lot more like a a, a club, you know, Watford Football Club, and it sounds like club is the the uh, the operating word there. Sounds like from your relationship with people. Yeah, uh, you know the, the 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 supporters club underneath occupation. Um, underneath occupation road by the by the old east stand it was just an old typical working men's club and then yeah. people would go from there to the red line it was all the same sort of people and it, it, it was almost you could have transplanted it to any any smallish town in the whole country i mean it was not dissimilar to going to rotherham for example a few years later it was exactly the same fabric the same faces the same dismal pints the the lack of creative <laughs> spirits um and then everybody would go to uh, uh was it kudos <laughs> Oh yeah, on a, on a yeah. Saturday night, and um, the 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 relationship between staff, players, fans, it was a lot. It was a lot tighter because there was uh, I come back to the word tangible relationship between between people, and also you'd see the kids coming through, and roughly my age at the time. So Darren Baisley's not not much older than me, and I'm I'm still in contact with people like that today because I saw them come through their youth periods, make the first team move on and then with the advent of the internet it, communications have been so much easier that in later years people come back and if i see them around the place you know we'll always have a always have a kind word and, and reflect on them days were any of those youth team players down at kudos as well all of them were at all of them, all, all of them. <laughs> why do you think donson's got sacked um yeah <laughs> the, the, uh, the, they were great they were great days i mean there was david james who was you know clearly a cut above from a very very yeah. great age but then drysdale and ashby they were two of the sort of more regulars um there was a distinct lack of professionalism it's, it's <laughs> got to be said um but we were only a couple of years or after the the, the sort of the era of uh, nigel callahan and and those that the sort of era i mean mid 80s it was the, the mo johnson george yeah. riley John Barnes, Luther Blizzard type of um, show. And the stories they had were far bluer than anything that went on in the 90s. So uh, yeah. we have been yeah. getting progressively more sane. Yeah, but I do I do think the 90s was, yeah, certainly the first half of the 90s is there's a sort of a, a long tail from the 80s going in there where that that the the professionalism that you associate with all the money coming in, that was still, it was, there was still quite a, that that sort of slightly slapdash amateurish and you know approach from a lot of clubs was still I suppose especially in in once you went below the top flight as well I mean they were being run and Watford being being still being run on a on a shoestring wasn't it at that time in terms of the actual budget that went into the club and the thing because what you're basically describing sounds like these days that's the kind of thing that people get involved in their local non-league club or sort of amateur clubs to where they want to sort of be involved in something a bit more community minded or something like that, where, where you can do all sorts of jobs and do different, but, but this was a professional football club that had only recently been in the top flight and, and you, you're just sort of hanging out with them and, uh, and, and getting to know everyone and getting involved in the, you know. So in the fairly... mid, in the mid nineties, we had Nathan Lowndes, this hot prospect. I think we got him from Leeds for about five grand that mm-hmm. he only ever made, I think it was something like four substitute appearances for us. But even so, you know, we paid money for this guy. That was the season we also signed Steve Tallboys, uh, rest in oh, peace. Yeah. Um, but Lowndes, I remember um, 
being in the post office buying my car tax and he was buy back in the day i'm not sure how it works now but you could buy six months or you could buy a year and he was buying six months because he couldn't afford the year and that was how that was how kind of not mm. affluent people on the fringe of a first team club in what was it then league one or division two whatever we're going to call it that's how that's how it was there, there was not a lot of money flushing about the place no players who were a little bit more sensible they had a decent house and and they had uh, a few things that came with it but, but there wasn't the, the money that flooded the game sort of at our level probably from maybe 99 onwards there wasn't that right up until that point we had a massive disparity when Helgerson signed for us in January 2000 he completely broke the wage structure there wasn't mm. there wasn't anyone who was vaguely near him at that point maybe now Wouter we'd signed a few months before yeah yeah no I, I, that's interesting I think you know we've talked about that a little bit uh, so far in terms of the, the budgets that managers throughout the decade we're working with him obviously we've gone through Perryman and Rhoda primarily so far but generally they were signing players for you know for the first team for sort of 30 40 50 grand and they were expected to be first team players so those were the sort of fees that you know they were working with and, and I think Matt you mentioned previously that was it Hessenthaler took essentially took a, a wage cut to come and play for Watford initially because he was working full-time uh, as a builder and and actually getting his contract at Watford he was probably not earning as much yeah that's the reality of the what the playing staff and the conditions were like I suppose at the, I think at I think yeah I think that's interesting Pete what you're saying is um you know there's this sense that the the people you're watching on the pitch you know they they, they earn probably more than you but probably not that much more than you is that fair? And then later in the decade, I guess it's gone up to like them earning sort of ten times as much as you. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in a little um, little fact, anecdote, um, partly from memory, partly because I've got access to Google. Um, <laughs> and um, the the unfortunate side effect of the win at Port Vale in '99 was uh, Paul Robinson's tackle on um, Stuart Talbot. While it didn't end. Stuart's career it certainly hampered it and there, there was a result in legal action where in April 2000 when it finally went to court the average championship wage at that time was £128,000 £128,000 let's just say in today's money with the inflation it's not far off 200 maybe maybe a little bit more there are plenty of people sitting around us in the rookery who are who are on that money. Yeah, it's, it might seem an absurd amount of money given the average wage, but now you look at that hundred twenty-eight thousand or two hundred thousand pound. That's a couple of weeks of our top, top earners, and we were in the championship last year. And it's when Ramon Vega became the first player in our history to earn a million pound a year. He was on nineteen and a half grand a week just to make it the million pound a year. And we had all, I think about six different players between 10 and 20 grand. No wonder we almost went under at that point because we suddenly went from this 128 grand a year times by eight, nine factor. The, the infrastructure, the mechanism of not just the club, but of the game and the community could not cope with that sudden transition between have a bit and have so much. And mm. it keeps on growing and uh, to the game's detriment, 
absolutely to the game's detriment. Let's uh, talk a bit more, Pete, about you've got very heavily involved in your, you know, uh, uh, latter, your your A-level years and started to get much closer to the club. What was going on around the time that, you know, when you finished your A-levels and were thinking about going off to university and, you know, what was going on? At, what, what year is, are we talking about then? And what was going, what was your level of involvement like with the club at that stage? Um, well, I'm still working match days and, and continue to do so for, well, for pretty much my whole university period when, when I was um, coming back. So, so 91, 92 was my, my A-level year. It was terrific. And um, you know, it finished off with that bizarre 5-2 against Bristol City, where was it Allenson um, and Attervelt and um, Azelwood got, got, <laughs> all got sent off. Yeah. There was that bizarre shot from Gibbs that barely hit the back of the net, although being struck from 30 yards. Um, and Luther, of course, his final goal for Watford. So that went off. And um, and then uh, we had the the imp- implementation of the back pass rule the following season. And, and Perry Suckling um, on the, the first game of the season against Millwall did a, it was it was a absolute horrible, I think he, he conceded, was it McGinley? Yeah, but there I was went- a couple of absolute car crashes in that one where the, the, the back pass rule came yeah. in. I think both, both keepers had an absolute shocker in that game. But I went off to um, I went off to uni on the the day of uh, Swindon Town away in October um, 1992, which of course we lost, and of course Furlong scored. Um, but very very quickly, it it became um, it, it's so easy to get to these sort of games that I'd never really dreamed of going to if I was in in Hertfordshire. Up until that point, we'd done London away games. I think we'd gone to sort of Car, um, Cambridge and, and and all around that sort of the below the M6 area. And then suddenly I get this opportunity because I was uh, I was studying up in Hull. And so I got um, the Barnsley 1-0 on the 7th of November, uh, 92, where Hesenthaler scored with an absolute fluke. And then a few days later, I came to the home game against Leeds, which was which was quite something. But it, over that period, we'd go to um, just rock up. We get a carload of us, and we at uni you had um, the university associations, which gave us great funding opportunities. So if you got enough of us together, we'd almost have a car paid for by the uni funds. So we'd go to um, Wolves, would be um, Wolves and West Brom, and then up to Sunderland and and, and all over the place. It was absolutely magnificent because there'd be hardly anyone there. And this was a season when, although Newcastle were really, really giving it some, um, Newcastle's actual position in the in the world was was not that was not that great. They were still no. they were still sort of struggling, struggling upwards. And I, I just found it I found it magnificent because you'd turn up and you'd see the same same souls, often most of them are still going now. And you'd see the coaches pull in, you'd go to a pub and there'd be a lot of intermingling between home and away fans. You'd not have to worry about tickets. You just rock up and pay on the turnstiles. And, and the other thing is there was a mass of free tickets going around because the players would still have their players comps. But of course, players' wives in those days, they weren't travelling to Barnsley on a Saturday. Mm. They, they, they weren't going to be going up to Grimsby. So there was all these free tickets being divved out before a game. So even though the, it was only about a fiver to get in, and there would only be about 150 of us there, although at Barnsley game, I think we did a count and it was about 75. <laughs> um, but there would be plenty of people in there free, plenty of people in there who um, uh, were, were students like ourselves. 
um, because it wasn't the country wasn't flush. You know, people didn't have the money that they do now. God knows how or why, considering the expense. But people didn't have the money. And also, after a fairly dismal five or six years, we really were on our asses as a club. We were, mm. were down to the level. I mean, 91-2, we got 1,700 for that ZDS game against <laughs> South End. I mean, you could have counted every one of them. They'd only opened two stands. Do you think those, do you think also uh, there's the economics of it at the time in terms of, yeah, the country being in a recession, but also the actual reputation of football at the time was not what it is now. In terms of, certainly in that early 90s. Like, I mean, it wouldn't people... be kids going. Um, no. there, was, there was very, very rarely any sort of dad with his boys. I mean, there was, there was one I remember who had a couple of sons. He would have his sons with him everywhere. And at home games, he also had his wife and daughter. Um, he's, he's sadly no longer with us, <laughs> as is so often the case when you get to our age. But but you'd always see him, like whether you go to Bolton, you'd see him at Manchester train station, Burnley, exactly the same, Liverpool, exactly the same. And he was, I said, how do you manage to do it? He goes, well, rules is rules. You know? I go to football, <laughs> boy comes to football. <laughs> but yeah, there weren't any kids. So now if we had a next season when we've got an away game at, let's just say, Sheffield United, there'd be tons of fathers and tons of mothers with their with their kids. There was none of that. It really, really mm. wasn't. And part of that was because there was the transition from the terraces as well. Terraces were fairly unforgiving for the kids on away games, especially if there was a lot of people going. Mm. But then the, the onset of the all-seater stadium, much as it's had its downside, has really made it a very different kind of crowd and experience. And I think actually that's probably a good thing because it's it's been brilliant as a parent to be able to just take your kids and know you're entirely safe. And the reputation of Watford's always been very friendly. We had a few naughty boys. We're always going to have a few naughty boys because that's just society. But it wasn't something that was associated with the club and therefore we've always been a safe haven for people who, who just want to go and watch the game and enjoy the bands. I mean, I wasn't going to away games at, at, at that time. Um, I probably started sort of a few years later, started going to my first away games. But... It felt even it felt like other teams never really saw Watford as a, a club that they would have a bit of needle with with their fans, or there wasn't that. I, I guess like that wasn't to say that you would they wouldn't there wouldn't be any like you say any banter with you know and back and forth once you're inside the stadium. But I don't think other clubs were looking at Watford fans and thinking you know they needed to prove themselves against Watford in that way because Watford weren't seen as being the sort of that sort of club, were they? Uh, in the words uh, of David Connolly, they had nothing to prove at that level. Yeah, yeah um, basically. <laughs> I've never forgiven him. I've never forgiven him. No. <laughs> I don't think many people have. I think in terms of the um what you were talking about was interesting about this yeah, the state of the stadiums and the fact that you didn't see many kids there and it was sparsely populated away terraces for Watford. Maybe we could talk a bit more about uh, how you started to, yeah, I suppose, recognise some of the the fellow band of hardy travellers that would be at those games. So there was always distinct groups of, of people. There were groups of students who had been, uh, who were at university locally. There was the, the mad old ducks who would, and still go on the club coaches who even if the game was um, in Hemel, would still get a club coach, such as the sort of you know, passion for routine and formality. There was the um, the, the younger lads who would um, sort of go together on the train and, you know, it'd be, a, be a day out, wouldn't it? And then there was the sort of the, the, the odd 
wonderful characters that really make up our club. Um, so, of course, people like Don, Don Fraser, who I think in the early 90s, he was still using his sticks and he was still up on his up on his haunches. But as as, as times been been kind of cruel, um, has ended up um, he was known with the start of the Internet as Cyber Sticks, self-named. And then his um, I'm not entirely sure we should use the name that he's awarded himself around the uh, time he went in the wheelchair. But, um, you know, a wonderful guy. He still goes. He actually won the BBC, I think it was, supporter of the season. Um, I mean, a, a fairly uh, a fairly compelling campaign that we run um, to get him voted up as, as the BBC <laughs> supporter of the season around, I think it was around 2006, something like that. Um, then there was some other strange, I mean, we, I think we've touched on um, Wolfie and, and people and the old git. I mean, old git, he was a wonderful, wonderful bloke I mean didn't have a didn't have a bad word to say about anyone and sort of almost saw his role as chief steward in the north stand in a slightly comedic yeah. way uh, and then Wolfie who obviously with the Team Wolf film and his sort of everly increasing facial <laughs> hair and the, the crowd oh, and he loved it I mean let, let's let's face it I mean if you look like a werewolf you'd want people to love that <laughs> um uh, but of course, then uh, the the much the much missed cigar man, I think, uh, needs a mention here because this was a guy who went to every game, um, home and away. He, he was very quiet. He hung out on his own. He um, he, he trotted along, and and he, he always had a he always had a big fat cigar on the go. And that literally that was probably more expensive than his entire wardrobe. Because he wasn't a well he wasn't a well dressed man, and as it turns out, he wasn't a well man either. To the point that we were away at Barnsley in September '94, memorable only for um, it being Kenny Sanson's only appearance. Another man who probably his best days were long past him. Um, Mooney got sent off right at the end for having a shot on goal a moment after the whistle had gone. So he got sent off for a second bookable. Cigar Man wasn't there. And no one could remember the last time Cigar Man wasn't there. Such was the few amount. Now they put you behind the goal at Barnsley. Back then, there were so few of us. We were stuck up in the top left hand corner of their main stand. I mean, there was no one there. But Cigar Man wasn't there. And someone said, I heard he went into hospital and he's, he's dead. It was like, oh, my word. Oh, that's really bad. So we sort of had this impromptu minute silence, which you couldn't really tell it apart from a non-minute silence. Such was the bad game. But one of the guys in the fanzine um, at the time, you know, we clap your hands, um, then said, oh, well, this is this is dreadful. We, we, we need to write an obituary for him. And we had a game the following Saturday against Luton, which was Gary Fitz. Gerald's one and only appearance. We made a hit theme of that at that time. People who'd only have one appearance. Warren Neal, <laughs> remember him? Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, we had this. Uh, we had the game against Luton. Obviously, a big derby. Everyone's getting geared up for it. And people are selling fanzines in the street, and it, it, in their haste, they put a one-page addition to the fanzine, which was a tribute to Cigar Man for his years of loyal service to the club. He'll be long missed. In memoriam. In memoriam, indeed. And Richard Walker, who's now one of the, one of the, uh, the, the club um, leady, leading community executive people and a, and a, a great man and a great friend, um, was selling his fanzines 
And all of a sudden, he got tapped on the shoulder, and it's Cigar Man holding his obituary going, I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he went into the, to the, the, end, uh, the North Stand, the Vicarage Road end, and he's like, what are you doing? He's probably dead. And he was like, it was the greatest moment in his life. He'd had recognition from the 2,000 people going, cigar, cigar, I'm here, I'm still here. I'll give you, I'll see you all off, I tell you. And he <laughs> chomping on this blooming cigar, giving it some. And, of course, we lost 4-2, and it was all forgotten. <laughs> and then we lost 6-3 to Spurs. But he's still wandering up and down Vickery Road. Oh, I'm still going. You're never going to take me. Um, but that's what happened when someone like that would miss a game. You assumed not that they missed a game. You assumed that they were dead. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, a brilliant. Uh, I love he, that. You know, thirty years on, he's he is probably dead. But um, <laughs> yeah, probably going to get a, a, a message over Twitter. I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is. I, I mean, the fact that they managed to get. Um, a rush out and a victory for him, uh, a special insert. I mean, I, I guess shows that the, the regard in which Cigar Man was held by the, the faithful at that time. You can literally imagine Matt Bento and Dave Messenger the night before putting in sort of A5 inserts into the <laughs> 800 fanzines they've got to sell. And then the look on their face is like, oh, what have we done that for when he, uh, when he turned around? I think that's really Amazing. interesting in terms of... Um, you, took, you know, a small, tight-knit group, like you say, you're seeing the same people week in, week out. And people are noted by their absence, not by their presence. I think, yeah, like, you know, it's just, just, you know, you obviously can't do that now with thousands going away. But but I think I think more than, more than a lot else, that really signifies a transformation since, well, 30 years ago now, really, isn't it? And I think that sense of community was, was so prevalent in... There's, there's a lot of people my age. I'm, I'm 48. There's a lot of people my age, probably a disproportionate amount of people my age who still go religiously. And that's because we grew up in the 80s and we had um, our, our friends years, you know, the, the years between leaving school and university and settling down, that kind of decade before it yeah. gets a bit serious. That was our decade. And... So we, we went from having, you know, being controlled and, and the family terrorists and the, all the controls of the 80s. And, and that was great. But we learned our values. We learned our um, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And by the way, we're all here to have a really good time. And then the 90s were the point where we sort of broke free a little bit and, and, and the booze was flowing and the, and the trains were running. And um, we could easily get in and get the free tickets and we get to know people and we'd all be part of a group and be part of a thing. And it was a thing that was undissipated by the modern world, as in it was almost a heart back to, to, a, to a yesteryear. Yeah. Um, I, I loved it. I loved it. I loved it with, with all my heart. There's something also just about going away, isn't there? That Obviously, it's like there's, there's the travelling to these other towns and cities around the country, just being in other parts of the country, like, and, and then even even more so probably when there's just a small band of you, but then when you actually, there's, there's something that just adds a bit more excitement about going to a, someone else's stadium and being there and feeling like you've, you've almost got a job to do as a fan there because to, 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 to represent the team and the, and the club because they, you know, it feels a lot more important being, and I think that's probably still true for away fans now, but 
but but more so, I think, given the sort of the circumstances you've described in terms of what the club was in, the state of the club was in, and um, and the lack of you know investment and profile and just general you know fact that football to by a lot of people had just sort of been completely forgotten. Um, but but I I think for me, like I just loved you know going away because it just it was just it was more exciting did you feel that as well going like going away from home did it did it have any sort of more different emotions I suppose that you'd feel from going to a home game I think I think home there's a lot of people who are carrying the mantle and supporting the team and or in you know in recent years to be honest yeah. fairly being fairly toxic a lot of the time away you almost felt as though if, if you didn't turn up why should the players because, okay, yeah, they're getting paid. But who are they doing it for? They're doing it to retain a league position, of course. But at the end of the day, it's an entertainment. And if they're not there to entertain their own fans, what's the point? And, and I always felt that I'd make more of an effort to get to the away games than the, the home games if there was a choice. Because A, it's more of an experience. B, I know the roads of England like the back of my hand even now. And, you know, you sort of say, oh, how do you get them? Port Vale and oh right okay well if it's busy you know I'm not going to go M6 I'm going to go up the M1 across on the A50 <laughs> um under the then in through the back roads into Burslem I've always and, thought you know, they should uh, they should um include more football in in GCSE and A level geography it's how I know my way around the country is from it's it, it's all based around grounds I know that <laughs> I remember a teacher being really impressed with me in in secondary school because I knew the river Trent was in Nottingham Based on the way, what the cricket ground was called and what the stadiums and the football ground were called, I think I think it's a it would make a big difference. And, if and you would know that the Larwood and Vos is right by the away end. Yeah, and it's a tremendous it. pub and it does a great jacket potato. Brilliant. Um, this is this is the stuff that should be on the curriculum. Yeah. Pete, you spoke about um, why do the why do the players do it away from home and um, and the, the fans turning up? I mean, do you think in the nineties the players appreciated your efforts? Yeah, I think I think they did. I mean, we were wretched away from home on the road. I mean, it was dreadful, absolutely appalling. Um, yeah, it, it was it was so rare that we got anything on the road during those seasons. And I think the players really, really did. Even I mean, the, the West Brom away game, night three four. Um, Solomon scored a cracker. Hesen Tyler got four 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 one four, 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 four one. The four one. Four, yeah, yeah. Four was ninety five six. Um, Foster two, Ramish two. My memory serves me correct. Um, but the players, you know, we lost four one. Everyone was humiliated. They nowadays they had a run off. They'd have just gone bang. Mm. They came over. They were, you know, bitterly apologetic. And actually, we Hesentola got sent off at I think two one down, and it was a, it was a tight game. And everyone was trying, and you could see that there was real effort. And the, but the other thing was, I mean, the uh, the, the the art of baiting the goalkeeper. A, a one that's gone when the, the when the home goalkeeper would come down you know you'd have banter with them all game mm. um and so there'd be this connection and the awake the home goalkeeper would often come down as well and say you know thanks guy oh, that was that was a bit of fun it was less serious mm. but the players i think they did really really care and part of the reason they really cared is because they knew four hours time they were going to be in the same nightclub <laughs> um yeah. and you know you, there was very few places to hide it, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like now where people would, you know, get on their jet and they'd fly back to their place in um, Spain, Mr. Delefeo, for a weekend um, or, or, or something or go into London to the sort of the VIP areas of clubs. They were down kudos. They were down 
um, was it in Hemel, La Mirage or whatever it was. There. Mm. And that, that's because that's where they lived. That's just where they were, they were still in the community. Um, okay, so, you know, you'd have Ramage still up in Nottingham and Jason Lee later on up in Nottingham, but largely players were still around. They still married people who they'd been um, to school with. They still married people from the terraces. I mean, it was it was a far tighter community. So they knew they couldn't hide. And therefore, they even if they hadn't had the best of games, they still showed genuine appreciation and humility. I think that was that was a big word, humility. I guess it was different as well because they didn't have, uh, even if the fans had been giving them a bit of stick during the game, like you say, you didn't have, because you didn't have things like social media and you didn't have the internet, it wasn't as, it wouldn't get as toxic necessarily as it does now in terms of the abuse that gets sort of targeted at players, which I think is in part why you have that separation and it, it has created a divide um, uh, and, and they are further away than ever from, the fans really, I think they obviously there's very carefully cultivated relationships in, between club and fans online, but it's not it's not anything like what you've been describing uh, uh, to us now in terms of the relationship that you had and and the and and the reciprocal relationship that the players have with the fans. I think that is that's something that's irrevocably like changed. I think there's no there's no question about that. Should we do? I think I think I think the the, the going back. Where it started and it stopped was generally in the ground mm. because there wasn't those media. Okay, so someone might write a letter to the Watford Observer. Ooh, that would be damning. <laughs> um, because also, you know, if it was too rude, they wouldn't have they wouldn't have printed it. So someone could have printed something to Watford Observer, and it wasn't really until the onset of the internet, and um, that really isn't. I mean, the 90s, we had the Watford mailing list set up in 94, but there's some very strict rules about um, abuse and whatever else. And, and some of the players were on there. I think I think Nigel Gibbs is still actually on the on Watford mailing list. Um, as uh, And he reads it and the club read it and people read it. But you know, there, there are rules. Now, it's, it's there's, there's so many unregulated forums that people can do what they want. And Twitter, I mean, most players won't see what's tweeted about them. They, they probably just don't care enough. But the point is, it feeds toxic behaviour. And it then feeds what goes on in the ground. And people are almost coming in with sort of 10,000 negative tweets in their head mm. and, and then exploding. And the first time anything goes wrong, it's like the, 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 the art of privilege just kicks in. Um, and it's, it, it's deeply depressing. But that's not about football. This is about society and about how the world has shifted away from reasonable behaviour, about consensus and about forgiveness Really, I can't. Why I had a few run-ins with um, a couple of people down the years because actually I thought some of the things that might have been said was inappropriate. I mean, it's particularly David Connolly, it's, it's well regarded. Um, and 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 there were a couple of players probably I'd met or didn't have the time for because they were they were frankly very rude. I remember Jason Drysdale responded to his "Gone but not forgotten" um, comment. Uh, there was an article on on Blind yeah. Desperate. Matt, where, Matt's told us about that. Yeah, about his oh, well, I got a bigger car than you, or I got a Ferrari, or whatever it was. You know, he's, and they, that, that well, that was his that was his you know bye bye then. Okay, fine, but I bet he's selling double glazing, and I bet he probably regrets it. But but so what? I mean, that's just a bit of kind of that's mm. a bit of needle you'll get anywhere. But there wasn't this kind of viciousness that is infected, not just people who go to football, but society in general, because they act with impunity. There is no consequences for this. 
it's ghastly. We've kind of talked about this in some of the other episodes about the, uh, I think when we were talking about the match day, we were talking a bit about the back and forth that the crowd had with the players during the game and the banter and stuff. And that there is, it's definitely changed. I think the atmosphere in the stadium and probably because, yeah, it wasn't as, it, I think there's that point you say about seriousness. It wasn't as serious, I guess. Like the whole sport wasn't as serious at the time for me, at least I don't think it was. Like, I mean, not to say that it was a joke either, because obviously it meant a lot to the fans at the time and it was the players' lives as well. So they obviously were like, they were committed, but it wasn't, it wasn't as serious. Things weren't, I think, you know, things that happen on the pitch weren't scrutinized the way that they are now as well in terms of everything, every single moment that happens on the pitch now is broken down. Uh, you know, every goal that's conceded, everyone's like looking at where the errors were made in the build-up. And um, the, the idea, the idea that it could have been taken massively seriously when you have Steve Cherry in goal. I mean, <laughs> let, let's let's be honest. Like the guy away, I remember away at Grimsby, it would have been about ninety-five-six. I think it was nil-nil. Um, you know, Steve Cherry, Cherry, he's fatter than you and me. You know, <laughs> he loved it. He did his whole chubby brown thing going. The game, the game was. Dire. If I if I remember um, if I remember properly, there was there was basically no one there. Um, it was a, a, an appalling appalling game, and it finished nil nil. There was less than four thousand there. I mean, something it, it stuck in my mind. Something like three thousand nine hundred ninety three sticks in my mind as that attendance, and it being one of the most dismal dismal moments of my sort of football in life, but it, it was made all the better for Steve Cherry, basically running around the, um, running around the goal area, doing chubby Brown impressions and, and, and just, it, it, it was funny. It was yeah. funny, but I mean, that, that, well, that team, that team from memory was, was not a bad team. And at the, at the back of it was Steve Cherry. <laughs> I mean, there's no excuse. Maybe let's talk about some of your best, the, the best and worst uh, away days you can think of, Pete, from the from the nineties. Let's start with let's start with the worst. What are some oh, well, of those worst? Worst is one of the last games of the nineties, and the Wimbledon five nil, a, a a game that we we just couldn't have played any worse. And bearing in mind that was a team. That did the double over us and got relegated. Yeah, they got relegated as well, didn't they? Yeah. It was so bad. There was not I mean, it was freezing as well. I mean, Sellers Park at the best of times is is not good, but it was it was so cold. There was 14,000 odd there. And you had a, you had a we had a decent team, you know, Chamberlain, Cox, one of the first and only appearances of the wonderful Xavier Gravelin, Hyde, Johnson. Ungangay, my lord, Robert Page, Steve Palmer, Paul Robinson, Mark Williams for his sins, and Nordin Vuta. They were the ones who turned out that day. Not a bad team, not a team to lose 5-0, but they just went to pieces. They went to pieces from the off. And it was it was just the moment that you realised this wasn't going to happen. We we bet we'd got one point, a couple of points actually, in the previous two months. We beat Chelsea in the September and then GT after the two all at well, Sheffield Wednesday. Remember being on match of the day, going EI Daddy O. We got a point. I remember that. Yeah. Oh man, and I, 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 God rest his soul, Graham. Love him, still love him. 
What were you thinking? Honestly. That was embarrassing. We, we just waved the white flag at that point. Then we drew when we drew to Newcastle, we lost to Sunderland, but that Wimbledon, then we lost to Birmingham, Everton, Tottenham, and then till the, the Southampton game that Gravelane got his only two goals for the club. But that Wimbledon was just the worst. There was nothing good about it. It was awful. I hated it. Um, and for that moment, I hated every single one in that ground as well. It was just so lonely. And we all felt the same. I remember that match. <clears throat> I don't. Um, I have a kind of. I have a false memory of watching it on TV, and I know that I didn't because I just checked, and it was a three o'clock on Saturday kickoff, so I couldn't have done. But it was when I was at university. It was my first year of university, and I, I must have instead of watching it on TV on the big screen, I must have just been watching uh, Sky Sports or something like that. But I can remember it was. I just remember sinking, and just every time a goal went in, just just being increasingly resigned to the the end result of that season and how things hadn't been going well. Uh, Wimbledon had a half-decent team at the time. You know, it was uh, looking at the goal scorers now, Carl Court, Robbie Keane, John Hartson, Jason Ewell, Marcus Gale. So, that you know, they had some players in that team, but you d- I mean, Watford shouldn't have been. Even, even with the team that we put out, we shouldn't have been going to Wimbledon and losing 5-0. But this is a team that beat Liverpool at Anfield. Yeah. Four months before. Just a few months, yeah, exactly. They could do it. Yeah, they could do it. Where the only real change was Mooney. No, it's going to um, say it's Mooney, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it, it it was Mooney. I mean, there was obviously some 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 tinkering. Um, in fact, the Liverpool away. I mean, Dominic Foley was a sub, and Clint Easton played as well. Um, but it was Mooney, and and how that season might have been different if Tommy hadn't got injured and yeah. doubled on at home to Chelsea. What about in terms of uh, away? grounds um the worst that you can think of from that time as well in terms of worst experiences of just being in an away stadium is there any that spring to mind there between 97 and the end of that prem season i think we did 65 different grounds i did every single one of them um and there was some there were some horrors in there from the old school but if you actually look back you say well Another another sanitised Majeski Stadium or Millmore, and it's, mm. for me it's Millmore every time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just just hilarious being in a place like being in a place like that. We, I mean, the the old um, the old Bolton ground was particularly unforgiving. <laughs> Turf Moor before it got done up. We, I mean, Nogan scored there, and I think it was ninety three four, might have been four five, um, and we ran forward and we we sort of put our hands on the cage thing. It was covered in anti-vandal paint. You know, we couldn't get anti-vandal paint off our hands for for a week. Um, it looked like we'd sort of been dumbed up for the black and white minstrel show. It was, but it, yeah, that, that's the sort of thing that we went with. Um, there was West Brom have a cell in the in their away end, um, underneath underneath the ground. They have an actual cell because they anticipate on putting people in it. I um I've never uh, don't think I've ever been in that ground but I've been gone up twice for games that have been called off well the Hawthorns yeah the Hawthorns yeah they made, made two trips to West Brom they've both been uh postponed or abandoned on the while while I've been in the car on the way up so yeah yet to yet to see the cage although I'm sure that's not there <laughs> I'm sure it's not there anymore there was there were some little ones some some really little places as well I mean Scarborough was hilarious up in that um January 95 obviously not not of our division and you always get that in the in the in the FA Cup, you or at least you hope for that possibility. 
Um, it was it was quite something. I, I miss some of those old sprawling terraces like uh, Roker Park. Mm. I miss the sort of terraces in St Andrews. I mean, massive bundle. Where was it? Ninety two, three. We drew two all up there, and um, huge bundle. We must have fallen fifteen steps. How things didn't get broken, we don't know. But you, those bundles on the away end, they were magnificent fun. I mean, just just crazy times. Um, and then of course down you get sort of more dismal but equally um, appealing at uh, Plymouth I think Plymouth was our first game after Lady Diana died and we went down there Kennedy scored a, a, a free kick and they ran us in the they ran us through Victoria Park afterwards it was oh Kennedy's free kick was a sign of disrespect um, <laughs> um oh, oh um, it might be slightly after but I want to sneak it in is when Brighton played at the with Dean I know it's a couple of years after but being literally a hundred and something meters behind the goal <laughs> was 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 something quite chronic um that's probably the worst ever football football um ground to watch watch at but we, we went we went to different places I mean so much and there's all these new grounds I mean the Derby and and the Leicester that that's a completely different experience now from being down the side at Filbert Street to being in that sort of nice concourse. I I loved I loved some of those kind of rustic-y experiences of, uh, of of just going out there and cracking on, and especially the ones in the north because they there there was an, a lack of pretension in the north a long time after that changed in the south. Yeah. Um, and and it it just was just as a bit more fun yeah i had uh um i think <laughs> i just just jogged my memory of uh going to bramall lane for the start of the i think it was a 94 95 season where we lost we lost three i'd gone up on the, yep. that was when i started going away but i'd gone up on the coaches for that one um and had gone up like quite excited about being there for the start of the season and because sheffield united were one of the fancied clubs um, who just come down and and yeah we got absolutely played off the park and lost three nil in that game and barely barely had a shot but I also remember the thing that stuck in my stuck in my memory from that was uh, someone at the back of the away end lobbing a pie and um and it but it it didn't make it like to the end of the stand and onto the pitch it 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 hit came off the back of someone's head, sort of ricocheted <laughs> off someone's head and exploded. And this flying pie, I, I got hit with a bit of pie debris. I remember having feeling a bit of pie jelly on the side of my face and sort of brushing that off. But the bloke, there was a bloke in front of me who took a bit more of the full impact of it. And he was, yeah, he was not happy about that. I could say that. As you wouldn't be if you're there to watch a football match and you get clunked on the back of the head by it. Oh, your own fan. By your own fans, lobbing a pie that, in disgust. That so. was Mark, Mark Watson's last ever league start, that one. Was it? Yeah. Oh but I don't God. know if you remember that. The Sheffield United were redeveloping their ground at the time and, and Bassett had um, erected some kind of lookout post that they'd decked in camouflage. Do you I don't remember, remember that. As we looked, it was on the left-hand side of the pitch. So the main stand still existed. Mm. And they, they'd knocked down the stand on the left-hand side and Bassett walked out. And I think it was the first game of the season. So he sort of walked out like to the tune of Colonel Bogey. And, um, and had gone up and he'd climbed up a ladder and he'd gone into his lookout post and they'd decked it out in camouflage. I, I, I really think my mind might be playing tricks on me, but um, who knows? What about some of the some of the best sense in terms of the, the away experiences that really are the most treasured ones for you? 
So I've, I, I've, I've mentioned the Liverpool 1-0 because it was completely unexpected and, and winning at Anfield for the one and only time was, was something remarkably special. Um, Dr Duncan's both before and after. We had a big day out, proper jolly boys out in that day. Um, Birmingham semi on penalties um, was, was something, I mean, you're um, all familiar with from the Rookery M podcast, which is, you know, very, very, very good. And um, they did a Birmingham special uh, a season or so ago. And I remember just sort of revisiting my memory around that and just the just the reaction of us all, because it been everything had been so unexpected that season. And, and as it got to I mean, how we held on for a 1-0 defeat in that game, I'll never know. No. The motion was incredible. And the holes were sent off. And even then, Birmingham kept on coming and their mm. crowd were amazing. And it was the most intimidating thing. And they were lobbing stuff and singing stuff. And it just kept on going. And I remember Simon Devon, um, a longtime friend, he was standing there and he got to penalties and he just couldn't watch. And he was like, Simon, you will stand, sir, and you will watch. You will face this like the rest of us. And I stood next to him at Wembley for the um, Deeney penalty in the semi-final a few years ago. And I just grabbed his hand and go, you will stand, sir, and you will watch. <laughs> like, nothing's changed. You know, we're still some stupid little kids there bounding around in 1999 and and, and Alex's uh, heroics that, that game. Um, but there is, there is only one game. There is only one game that sums up the 90s or the at least the early part of the 90s as an away game, as an experience. And if I say that I had to um, borrow the university minibus in order <laughs> to get to it, to drive down the A15 and um, ultimately end up on a Tuesday night in April 1994 at London Road, Peter. Oh, Okay, yeah. Um, with my with my long term friend Craig Harrison, who was like, "What are we doing again?" So you're coming, sir, to history, <laughs> and knowing he'd been to a number of different games that had invariably ended far from historically, with two of us in a fifteen seat minibus, <laughs> it was this complete joke. And I'd done two days of computer programming for the union, um, as in order to get sort of payment for this thing. And um, unfortunately, about an hour before we were due to go, it, all the computers crashed and there was no backup. So I was like, how am I going to get around this one? And I was like, I just will have to um, say it's all done. And I'm so glad I did because um, that game was ludicrous. A.D. Boothroy was playing for, um, for for Peterborough that day, wasn't he? Was he? I, I thought we were, it was, I think we played him again in 96. Did he score a penalty or miss a penalty against us? I, I I feel he was on my radar. I'm uh, fortunately at that point. Yeah, um, I'm not sure, but but yeah, no, he certainly he certainly played against us in the nineties and, and, and possibly yeah. took a penalty. I might have made that up. Uh, we were all at that game, and Mike and I spoke about it. Uh, uh, well, we've spoken about it a lot, Mike, haven't we? We absolutely absolutely loved that game. Uh, I hadn't been to many away games at the time, and I certainly hadn't been to many away games uh, on a terrace, but. I had the time of my life that night. I thought it was it was it was absolutely magical. Loved every minute of it. The bundle after bundle, and they, you know, Dublin when he put that in at the end, it was like there was no better feeling. I had I had a girlfriend at the time who was a Newcastle fan, and um, I couldn't imagine anything I ever did with her to be <laughs> even on the same plane as <laughs> that experience. You know yeah. what a wonderful 
wonderful evening that was. And I think I think it turns out there was at least 15,000 Watford fans there by um, by everybody who claims to have been there. It's pretty much, you know, there was sort of 47,000 at the 7-1 against Southampton. I was going to say, that's the next the, the previous generation's version of that, isn't it? Yeah, I, I was at the Sunderland 8-0. But um, yeah, that that 94, that evening, it remains just quite the most comically brilliant, emotional night I've had following Watford. Um, and, you know, the Birmingham semi and everything else that's come after that, it just doesn't compete. I don't know why. Because, I mean, we beat Peterborough. Woo. <laughs> but then you were there and you know what it meant. Uh, completely agree. I think that's that was our emotion of it was that it was because at the time it was like the biggest game in the universe because it was it meant so much for both clubs and I think that's why it was you know it's it was such a big game for Watford and for Peterborough and someone had to come out on top because you know a draw was no good really for either club um, and to come out on top in that fashion and in such a like ludicrous fashion because it was a ludicrous football match where you just thought anything could happen and pretty much anything did happen. Uh, it, it was intended to come out the right side of that in one of those kind of roller coaster games where the lead changes hands a lot. And yeah. there were the know. quality so low. We we could have lost that like yeah. by a couple of goals, couldn't we? We could have won it by a couple of goals. Yeah, I mean the 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 all most of the goals are awful. Yeah. Um uh and but that just made it all the more fun, I think, because you know, you just <laughs> be like ball ricocheting five times on its way into the net and sort of trickling over the line. And uh it was yeah, that was the first time I'd experienced that sort of like away end bundle. Um and it was yeah, it was intoxicating. I think I think that's the thing about an away when you have an away experience, you can go away with a club like Watford a lot and you can experiences of the actual match can be a lot of them are going to be rubbish because they're not, they can they be secondary can't they yeah because Watford don't you know they're usually up against it when they go away and apart from the odd season we've had where we've got you know a promotion or something where we've you know we've got a lot of good results on the road but for a long period of our history we've going away with Watford has meant losing and um uh, uh and often losing badly and so when you do get those those moments I think where it all comes together and you come out the right side of it that's that's what sticks with you and it's the fact that we all have such a treasured memory of that game it would do it's yeah it's amazing it's amazing to then feel like you you really feel like you've been part of something um and I guess that's what that is ultimately what you follow a football club for um uh you get you get that you get that but no that's a memory that you have for life isn't it it was uh absolutely fantastic well, we're we're now talking nearly thirty years ago, yeah. And that is the defining memory is that last moment of. I mean, I was right behind Lavin's goal, yeah. Um, mm. but I was also therefore right behind sort of Dublin's <laughs> goal as well. And yeah. the moment, the, the 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 memory isn't watching Lavin's goal sort of scream in like a little grass cutter. It's the sort of chaos of Dublin and everything that went on before, yeah, and, and everything went on after. And trying to find, trying to just sort of find myself and find my friends because we'd all become so separated by that bundle, and the, the great, the great changes in the game for all their benefits, they'll never allow that kind of thing to be replaced, because you'll get you'll get your last minute Deanies against Leicester and whatever else, 
but you won't get that careering down 15 steps when you scored over landing with some sort of you know middle-aged man on top of you it, it's it was it was just wonderful it was a, it was a different era and I think all for six quid as well so I think one other thing we wanted to touch on Pete with you um uh, in terms of your involvement with the club and the, the you know the different layers of involvement that you've had over time was obviously you've been quite directly involved in actually working for them but then you also were involved in in the establishment of a, an independent supporters club uh, in the mid '90s, do you want to tell us a bit about how and why you 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 got involved in that and and, and made that happen? Yes, I'm I'm very proud actually of of some of the stuff that as a fan base we achieved during that era. Post Hillsborough, and there was the FSA, the Football Supporters Association, and that was always around a common theme about how fans can. Uh, influenced the game better and there was all sorts of charters and, and correspondence with government and everything. And, and then the Taylor report really did paint fans into a quite an awful picture, which invigorated the FSA, but that was always around a common idea. Independent supporters associations were founded from sort of the earlier part of the 90s, sort of 92, 93, and were trying to draw in uh, fans from each club standing on the a mandate of what their club needed. And what we had a problem, and we had this gaping chasm between Petchy and everybody else. He would make um, decisions without, there was no consultation, there was no dialogue, there was, there was nothing. It just sort of happened. And I, being at university and being heavily involved in the FSA, I knew that when I was coming home in, in 95, that something had to be started to at least start a dialogue with with the club. And although I don't think the club themselves took it particularly seriously at the start, and, and to be fair, you know, I was 21, quite verbose, um, and had um, you know, very little subtlety. At the same time, the points that were being made is that you, know, you could do a lot worse than actually talk to us. You could uh, do a lot worse than actually have a, cons- a consultation. And because immediately some of the people who were joining were you know, lawyers and accountants and people who wanted to just sort of pay their few quid and actually be part of something that said, actually, we, 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 if we come together, we've got a better chance of being heard. And there was a lot of people with a lot of skills. Um, and although... Things were born around inexperience and it wasn't particularly well run. Um, we didn't even know, I don't even think we had a computer. There was no internet for communications. I think one person might have had email. And the, but, but it actually did invigorate people to have a discussion. It gave us a forum, it gave us a platform. And then when Taylor came back in, in the February, he phoned me at work and was like, look, I'd known him as a, as a kid. Um, we'd, we'd lived a couple of roads apart. And, and he said, what's all this about? Why do you need it? And I said, well, come in and have a chat. And he actually took us quite seriously. He was very, very pro um, the fan base being represented in, in discussions. And so before the Charlton game in 96, there was a a meeting in his office and there was a couple of guys, it was Doug and Eddie Brimson and there was a couple of others, someone who run the coaches and a few others in there. And I was in there with, with a, one of the other people who were running, running WISA, WISA, just to say, look, 
Yeah, en enough's enough. We need a we need a proper dialogue around these things. You've got a national mandate. La the Labour Party at the time were doing a lot of stuff around uh, appealing to the football supporting community about fans' parliaments and fan mandates. And Claire Ward, who is the um, the girl who got the became MP for Watford in I think '97, one of the um, Blairite intake. Um, was also behind what we were trying to do and saying, actually, look, this is quite serious. And now you see now the 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 whole, not the FSA, but the FSF and all the other iterations of that have come out of it. And then that that led to the supporters' trusts. And the supporters' mm. trusts, you know, they're embedded in universities. They're a major place for research now. And I think they've provided, certainly in the lower echelons, I mean, the fan-owned clubs of Wimbledon, and Exeter. This is all spawned from the originally the FSA. Then you have the Independent Supporters Associations, and then the Trust. And I and I stand by the fact that if it wasn't for the Watford Supporters Trust, our club would not have come out of um, the the perils that they were in in the early two thousands because um, we pulled the fan base together. Not only in the terms of getting all the proxies together and raising actual real money for the club to help them out of various situations. But we kept fans on side by working with the club to ensure that the messaging was um, tolerable, was correct. We looked, we had people who were accountants and again, lawyers supporting the club with their due diligence as they were trying to raise money. And much as I'm sure revisionists will always say, oh, well, it would have happened anyway. When the club has been in its darkest hours, the fans of our club have stood up and have actually turned around and said, we will help you because this is our club. And they were the noises we were making. They were the efforts we were making. There was some of us, we took six months off work to try and make a difference when the club was on its ass after the Viali and, and the, the, the whole ITV digital thing. We took time out of our lives to make sure that what was going on was in the best interest of the future and that we weren't all just going to end up um, going down and down and down, which could have easily happened. And the likes of Tim Shaw, remarkable individuals at the top of our club, remarkable individuals. They put their personal wealth in beyond any reasonable level to ensure that our club survived. But they couldn't have done it without a cooperative association with the fans and and. People don't always stand up and put themselves forward. I did that. I didn't do it for my own benefit. I did it because I think it was the thing it was right to do. And I I love the fact that I can proudly turn around and say I tried to make a difference. And 30 years on, 20 years on, myself and a bunch of people who are at the time looking around going, what on earth can we do? We're now looking at the same sort of situation going, it's a little bit fishy right now. Yeah, there's a, there's a few problems. Mm. Actually, there's supporters trust AGM for the first time in God knows how long in a couple of weeks, which I'm eagerly looking forward to, because actually now's the time for fans to come together, not to be driven apart. Because it, let's, let's face it, it's all well and good saying we want pots out. Oh, and what? Mm. And what? In 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 my naivety, you know, we want Petchy out. And what? Mm. What happens then? Because we didn't have an answer. We want all we wanted was a dialogue. And we didn't want season ticket prices to go from £199 to £320 without explanation. So they did. They explained it. They gave us cause for hope. 
And they had that dialogue and they would phone up. And, and frankly, I don't buy all this business about, oh, well, there's only a select group of people who've been invited into this latest forum. So what? It's, it's an attempt to make a difference. It's an attempt to have a dialogue. You have a dialogue with too many people. The dialogue becomes dissipated. The dialogue becomes pointless. because It stops being dialogue. You don't make any progress. It just becomes a rabble. And so the, I think the club are doing entirely the right thing at the moment by having a limited dialogue with, with, with people. Um, it, it, it makes no odds if you're going to talk from, you know, with Stephen from Sutton, because he happens to have been on WML and Twitter and all these other things, and he's joined 17 different clubs, your voice is not going to be unique. So get people with a mandate, get people with a constitution, get people who've got an objective, bring them together and try and make a difference. And there's plenty of fans out there. You know, we have, again, some of the most in, impressive people in society within our fan base, whether it be politicians, whether it be businessmen, you know, you've got Miles who I sat next to for donkey's years. He runs one of the biggest sports, in, uh, one of runs the biggest computer game companies in the world. You know, people like that within our fan base, tap into those people and get support. You don't need to be dialoguing with people who abuse you all the time. And I think what happened with, with, with YC, you know, Again, it was it was amateur hour in what who we were. We didn't have any experience, but we were just trying to do something different. We tapped into the national movement, and it was it was well regarded, and a lot of good things came out of all of that. Um, and then I got some amazing friends as well. When WIFC Watford Internet Football Club started, came out of the whole uh, mailing list age and um, the the first website. So that club's still going. It's now it's his 25th season, 26th season. Um, we've we've won national team of the year on a number of a number of occasions just for the ethos, just for the um, the behaviour of the club, the welcoming nature. You host your away fans. It's it's old school, but it's wonderful, and it still goes. And these these the kids who are now playing for that team, they they take forward. The whole, those values that we took from Graham Taylor back in the day, we took what was right, we implemented it in the 90s, and that still carries on. And um, we can look very proudly at our legacy. And that's about doing things properly, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, rules is rules, right is right. Yeah. And um, I don't believe there is um, a different way in football. Football's a game for the masses. It's a community thing. It is something that you hold up and say, this is my team, this is my community, this is who I am. I was in Italy last week and um, I was talking to a guy in a queue, uh, in a queue for um, to see the statue of David. <laughs> Guess who he supports? But his first game was that 4-0 wretched game at Palace in 96. <laughs> the first and only person I spoke to in Florence. <laughs> And he was there with his girlfriend. He's like, oh, my God. Oh, dear me. Um, but, the, but the point is, you know, and he's talking about stuff that brought him into it. He's a, bit young, he's a bit younger than me, a bit younger than you. But he was talking about what brings him into it. And if we can look proudly at, you know, our children and say we're, we're still flowing down that ethos mm. in years to come. And then they'll have children and they'll have children and the club is still going to be there. And we can't change society. We can't make society stop and just sort of hang on to the idea of rolling down a terrace in 94 at Peterborough. But what we can do is say you behave well, you act responsibly, you act in the best interest of your club, you love your club, you respect the players and they will respect you back. 
if that's what we have to try and hold on to to keep this great game alive, then so be it. But I love Watford. I love Watford Football Club. And I love my friends and everything that's come out of it. I love this podcast because it's got me so welled up listening to some of these memories. And thank you so much for doing it because it's beautiful. It really is. But we are we are a very special club. and We should never forget that. And we all come and go and we we live our lives. Invariably meet women, settle down and then find it a bit more difficult. But thank you for doing this. You're very welcome, Pete. I think um, it's been like, I mean, I think we'd echo all of your sentiments about what the club means to us. I mean, we kind of joke about it as well, don't we, Matt, that even though we're sort of fixated on this particular decade is where we sort of fell in love with the club. But even now, like in our 40s, um, can't quite uh, let the addiction of Watford go. And it's still like, yeah. I still get, still get really... Uh, Still find myself getting really annoyed on a Saturday. Like <laughs> the club still consumes and indeed pollutes my Saturdays most weeks. Yeah, yeah. yeah basically, even though neither of us are they're able to get to too many games at the moment, but um uh it still has its claws into us. And uh once it does, yeah. I mean, I know everyone says that they're you know, everyone will talk about their own club probably in you know revered tones, but I do yeah, I, I think that some of the stuff you've been talking about today, Pete, um, uh, definitely brings to life like what an absurd and brilliant football club uh, Watford is, and hopefully continues to be over the next, you know, over the decades to come. Tell um, you one last one last thing: when when yeah. we play our um, reserve games at Northwood in in the nineties, the mid nineties, Graham um, Taylor used to. He used to turn up to pretty much every every one of them to see probably how Richard Flash was getting on. Um, <laughs> and But he used to stand in the same place, um, which was a, a corner up near the cemetery. And he would stand there and there was rules around, um, around Graham. They were unspoken rules, but they were rules nevertheless. And he would be, he'd rock up and he would stand there. And as you'd walk around the, the ground sort of, you know, because there's no point in standing still on those nights. And as you'd walk around, he would sort of get eye contact with you and sort of with his eyes, he would invite you in for a chat. It would be, he, he would be um, interrupted constantly by people who would, you know, were not people he would um, want to necessarily talk a massive amount to, but um, he would um, nevertheless give everybody the time of day. But then he'd wait and then he'd feed you something. He'd feed you something mm-hmm. really interesting. Like you, you just, how old Peter, you, you just watch out for that number three we've got from Notts County. I tell you, he's going to be really something. And there'll be Sam Allardyce over there who just sold Peter Kennedy to, to us. And it, what he meant was go on, go and wind Sam up because he <laughs> right, lost some money on that guy. <laughs> but it would be just like that. He would just feed you little snippets. And the great, the great Graham Taylor um, for me was um, uh, 97 and three of us, AD Spender, Don Fraser and I decided we were going to go to Lithuania on a pre-season tour. We were the only three fans who went. And um, we got to Heathrow and there was only one flight a day. And we'd only decided with a couple of days' notice to go. 
And we got to, and he's like, oh my God, Peter, what are you doing here? For God's <laughs> sake, this is like a kick around. We, we weren't expecting anyone to come out here. <laughs> anyway, we were like, oh, well, we decided to come anyway. So he's, he's, he's wonderful. Anyway, little did we know, we get to Vilnius and we've got to get the Kaunas and, and it was like late evening. And he's like, how on earth are you lot getting up to Kaunas? We've got a game to us. Where's Kaunas? <laughs> not a clue. Not a clue. He goes, jump on then and it so the team bus is there well there's two of us Adi and I and then Don's in a wheelchair so then you've got players lifting a guy in a wheelchair onto the team bus to take him up to Kaunas the next day well, we'd had a we hadn't found a hotel we'd end up sleeping the night on the, on the floor of the taxi driver's place and um but anyway we'd gone in back into town and we were there and we'd had a drink and the game was at four o'clock Anyway, the, this the, the pitch, the stadium in Kaunas is right up the right up a hill, and it would have taken us an hour to push Don up there. Anyway, so we're sort of lingering around, having another drink, and Sailor's like, "Right, come on, on, on you get." So it puts us on the team coach getting there, and as we get up there, Aidy's carrying a, a video camera, and we get off with a BBC. <laughs> they, they treated us honestly. They gave us access to all areas, and <laughs> the people who didn't speak any English, and he was like pretending that we were with the BBC. We had a video camera. Aidy had forgotten his charger, so the video camera ran out midway through the first half. <laughs> um, but we carried on, carried on doing it anyway. Anyway, so we were we were royally robbed in a game, and it turned out the game was actually a bit rigged because they wanted the local team to be playing Alani of Cavcaz in a televised final the next day. So we'd lost this some dubious last-minute nonsense, and and we were giving the referee a pendant from Watford that Graham Taylor had given us for her. Mooney walks past and goes, "Don't you be." About, don't you give that referee anything anyway the next day um we'd played another game and it had been fine and and um we were sitting outside a hotel having a couple of drinks late in an evening and graham walks out and he's just about to go for a night out and he sees us and he comes comes over and goes yeah, I'll, I'll sit with you lot and so we sat there for an hour a good hour and a half getting to two hours then the referee from the game before <laughs> comes out of the hotel taylor just jumps up grabs his hand, shakes it royally and goes, pissy offy, pissy offy. <laughs> and it was, it was just pure legend because the guy was just like thinking, oh, I'm being greeted by the ex-England manager. Not a clue that he's totally taken into pieces. Um, it was wonderful. It was just wonderful days. So I think we've covered an awful lot there. Um, lots of amazing memories, I think. And they've really been, it's been a pleasure listening, Pete, to your experiences following Watford during the 90s. And obviously, what it's meant to you and continues to mean to you to this day because I think that's what you know me and Matt were trying to tap into a little bit when we thought of starting this podcast uh just because it it, it is a, it was a different decade it was a decade where Watford didn't achieve a huge amount but we, they did achieve some great things which you know we haven't actually really covered yet in the in the podcast so far I think there's more more of the highs to come as the as the decade progresses but but what I think the reason, you know, we both liked it so much as a, as a period of time is because it felt like, like, yeah, a lot closer to the club, a lot closer to what was going on on the pitch and more intimate in a way. And I think you've really, well, taken that to another level with some of the experiences that, that, that you shared. And the reality is, which I think like Matt and Pete, I'm sure you'd agree, is that football has you know, has changed. We all know that. And 
it won't be the same for different generations of fans. They'll have different experiences. I'm sure they'll have their own things that they, you know, remember fondly from growing up watching Watford now, um, like we would have. But but I think the things that you've brought out, Pete, in terms of the, the you know the camaraderie of the fans, the, the 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 fact that you all sort of knew each other, the the experiences of going away with Watford at that time, and how you know. Uh, uh, few of you would actually be making those trips and uh and therefore the sort of like relationships that you'd have with the, the playing staff at the time um but then also just yeah the opportunity to be that bit closer to to the club as a result and uh and really like feel a part of it um which ultimately led you to create that independent supporters club as well and and the movements that sort of followed in in the late 90s I think you know that that's all come across, and thank you very much for sharing that and for your support. Is there anything, anything you'd like to say, Pete? I suppose to give you the the final word before we we wrap up. Keep the faith, you yeah. ones. Yeah, <laughs> that's. Uh, 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 I think we can all get behind that sentiment. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we'll be back with another episode soon. Uh, you can follow us at Oh My Word Pod on Twitter. Please continue to share your, you know, thoughts and reactions. We'd like to. It's all part of this. A big part of this is obviously just sharing everyone's experience and memories of the '90s because we've had a lot of fun with everyone doing that so far, and hope that that continues because that is that's ultimately what what we're here for is just pure pure nostalgia. So please do continue to share, and uh, we'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye. Hodges. Ah! My word. Oh, no wonder the smiles are there.